there was, there was a, I don't know if there was official bets or just conversation wondering if I would actually come back. Uh, you know, I spent some time in the mountains. It's hard to come back from that. Just, I said, I felt a tiny, tiny bit guilty about how good I felt being by myself. <laughs> tiny bit. But it was an introvert's paradise for a lot of that. But um, I'm very excited to be back and um, ready to see the kingdom of God flourish. Go to the Gospel of John. The Gospel according to John, chapter 1. I'm talk a little bit about stories. We'll be just reading 18 verses, but um, don't underestimate the power of stories. Stories, they have the power to shape us, uh, shape how we think, shape our imagination, um, shape our hopes, our expectations, um, what we dream to be possible. Stories shape that. Um, we value kind of culturally, we value practical things, we value principles, um, we value steps and things being orderly and things being able to make sense. Uh, but principles and precepts is actually not primarily how you learn and grow. It's a part of it and an important part of it. But actually what has more of a power to shape you are the stories that you hear and learn and even believe. Um, there's not a lot I'm afraid of. I mean, I saw my son dead and come back to life, and it's like, I've seen that. I'm just not afraid of a lot of things. Um, but I have a healthy respect for the ocean. And by healthy respect, I mean I don't go in the ocean. Because I was exposed to a story, maybe earlier than appropriate, of an out-of-control great white shark. And I just assume everything in the ocean is there to kill me. So we're just, we're just not going to be, we're just not going to, we'll have a healthy long-distance relationship. Um, but think about the stories that has shaped the way you think. It, it is the primary propaganda of the enemy. It's not just lies. It's lies communicated to you in a story that seems to be true. But it's also the primary way the gospel comes to you. If you think about the question, what is the gospel? What is the good news? What is the good news of Jesus? It's a topic I hope to explore next year uh, on the weekends a little bit. It's something I thought I would get to this year, but man, when you're just thinking about something and praying it through, it's just things you just know you're not ready to communicate yet. Um, and just that question, what is the gospel? And most people right now would try to communicate the gospel by giving you a series of facts and principles that we have to mentally adhere to and believe if we are to be saved. I'm not against principles. I'm certainly not against 
truth or, or facts or things that uh, I am I, a big fan of us mentally understanding the things that we believe. However, that's not how scriptures communicate the gospel to you. If you think about the four gospel accounts, what are their formal titles? The gospel, the good news, according to the gospel writer. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel according to John. And then what does each gospel proceed to do? Tell you the story of Jesus. They don't go into a theological treatise of penal substitutionary atonement theory. It's a real thing. They tell you the story. And they don't just tell you the story of his death. Think about it. The story of his death and resurrection. If that's all they felt appropriate to say about Jesus, that's all they would have written. Why do they tell us more? Because it's a part of the good news. It's a part of the good news of Jesus. And don't, us, don't underestimate the kinds of stories that are trying to communicate another gospel to you. I don't know how many of you have young kids. Maybe that's a distant memory and you're happy it's a distant memory. I don't know. It's sort of a current reality for me, so I'm still in the thick of it. Uh, Think about if I said it this way, the gospel according to Disney. What would be the quote unquote, good news being communicated through those stories. During sabbatical, my wife and I took our kids. We have some friends who live uh, in the Tampa Bay area. And so we're like, hey, we never get this much time off. Let's take a vacation and take five children on a plane to Florida. That sounds like a fantastic idea. I made sure I put it in the middle of the sabbatical so I could mentally prepare and have plenty of recovery time from that. But, and we were close enough that we were able to take four of our kids to the Magic Kingdom for a day. And we've been to Disney before. And honestly, it's a wonderful place. It's a magical place. And we had a ton of fun. Um, but it's telling you a story. It's telling you a story about what's true and what's a lie. It's telling a story, Disney as a company through movies and truthfully every entertainment company and through a seemingly harmless medium of entertainment is telling you a story about what's true, about what's not true, about what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a child, what it means to be an adult, what it means to have relationships, what it means to have dreams and what you can do with those dreams. It's all a story being communicated to you about what's true and who you are in the world. And it's not just kids' movies, you know? If you can dream it, you can be it. Adults are stupid. That's what I try to communicate to my children about like all, think about 100% after like 1995, pretty much after the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, every (laughs) sitcom... Every sitcom targeted to young adults or kids, the main theme is adults are stupid. 
They're clueless, they're idiotic, they're silly, they're stupid. <laughs> we have this discussion every time a new show comes up. I'm just saying like, honey, I do not want you to not just not watch it, don't believe it, because every one of those adults are stupid. <laughs> and it's written that way. It's written that way to tell your child they're smarter than you. That's a story that's being communicated about what's true and not true. When you're young, a young adult especially, um, you get out of, you know, formal schooling, you might extend that period, but for the most part, you become an adult, you have more liberties and freedoms. And there's this, this wild longing for life, like to, to, to do things that matter, um, to, to soak up life uh, and to, to build the things that make for life. And there's just this, this internal longing for meaning and purpose. And there's this sense where I wanna be in control of my story and I want to write an awesome one. I want to do big things and great things and be a part of something big. And when you go from young adult to just adult, I don't know when that threshold is, but I was asked, someone asked me like, do you still yourself, do you still consider yourself a young adult? And I said, I waved goodbye to that a long time ago. I don't, I wish, but I'm just going to be honest with myself. That's not me anymore. There's a point at some point in adulthood where you did get the job. You did get married. You started having kids. You started to do the things that you want to build in life. And then all of a sudden you have to come to grips that maybe your story isn't so amazing. Maybe it's just normal. <laughs> and you want, you want to just grasp that in life. Like, like, am I ready to come to grips with that? And some people, you honestly go one of two ways. You say, no, I'm going to find meaning in the life that I have and the life God's given me. Or what often people do, and it's somewhat anthropologically called uh, midlife crisis, uh, but there's, there's even a spiritual version of it. But they, they want to recover that wild fire of young adulthood. And so you end up making stupid decisions. <laughs> but as you age, as you age and become an elder, you just want your story to matter to someone. You want to know that whatever story you have, however amazing or normal it was, that it matters to someone. Why? Because these have the power to shape how we think and we want our lives, the story that we have lived to mean something to someone. I remember a couple months ago in the foyer here in Sherman speaking to Ken, a church member here who's been a church member for a long time. And we, we got to just talking and I just, I can't remember how we got on the conversation, but he just, he started telling me the story of how he came to know Jesus. And for him, this is separated by like, 40 years or more, 50 years. And like, he's telling me the story of like this tragedy that happened and that how he had a near-death experience uh, and someone else was in the same incident that had lived a good life, a holy life. It was a pastor, but that person died instead of him. And just listening to the story and seeing like the meaning in it, like I want, I, I, I want that story to mean something to me. And he wants it to mean something to me. And I want that story to be told to others so that we can see the mighty power of God working in, in difficult and tragic situations. And you think about the word of the saints in Revelation, that they overcame 
the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony for they, what was their story and testimony though? They love not their life to the end. And so there's a story here that we as a church are intended to carry on, but I don't know if you've noticed, there's a significant exit of the Christian faith of a lot of public figures it's called deconstruction. They're publicly deconstructing their faith in front of others. They're telling the story that what they had believed previously is wrong, and now they have a new sense of enlightenment, and they're walking away from the rigidity or the, the falsehood or the shallowness of the Christian faith. And they're doing it publicly. They're telling their story, and that story is having impact in shaping young minds. Most of the time I listen to those stories and I go, if that was the depth of your Christian faith, I probably would deconstruct that too. Because you didn't bother to look beyond the shallows of what the Christian faith is. And let's be honest, there's a lot of shallow Christianity out there. That isn't to say that there there aren't good-hearted people that have shallow, but there's just a lot of shallow faith. And so it's those stories though that that I don't want to make sure as a church that... We don't just get caught up in the right principles of the Christian faith or the right doctrinal tenets, as important as those are. As important it is to know the scriptures and know the principles and know what ethic is according to the Christian faith, what truth is according to the Christian faith, what beauty and a a glorifying aesthetic for the Lord is according to the Christian faith. As important as those things are, let's face it, your faith is not a philosophy. It has a philosophy, but that's not what it is. At some point in time, if you are a Christian, you believed a story that was told to you. The true story of a singular person, the most important person in human history, Jesus. And in a time like this, when the tidal wave of consumerism is just overtaking everybody and they'll sort of, in a market scheme, call it the holiday cheer, the holiday spirit, what they're telling you is that the holiday spirit equals buying things you can't afford. That's the holiday spirit according to the story being told to you on every commercial. And I tell you, the most false commercial there is are those commercials that have expensive cars in a big old bow in a driveway as if like, oh, you surprised me with a Lexus. Like what person who has enough wealth to buy a Lexus does it by surprise? I just, I can't fathom that. I just imagine buying something of that value. And my wife's like, you're an idiot. How much other things could we have bought with that? You did that without talking to me? I don't spend 30 bucks without talking to my wife. Story and it's a lie. (laughs) Don't buy it. We don't just need to, to preach great sermons. We need to tell great stories. And I'm not talking about people from platforms. Talking about you. Your story matters and how Jesus has invaded your story matters. And the story of Jesus is the most important story that we have to never lose familiarity with. 
Yes, all the Bible stories. I'll show you a few things of how John sees those, but we don't we also don't want to allow all of the stories we heard in children's church remain children's stories. That's been it was one of my was one of my desires as a youth pastor is reintroduce teenagers to the real story that was too um, uncomfortable to teach children. Do you not know those stories? Because that's all the Bible stories. Every one of them are not appropriate for children. Did you, not, you didn't know that. Okay, there is, a, there is a childlike way to communicate some of the essence of a story. But I remember having a conversation with someone that they were talking about Esther and, and Esther like, like being a model. And I'm like, hang on, hang on. Have you read the book of Esther? Because it's like 80% sex and booze. Did you know that was in your Bible? Because if you didn't, you need to read it. And it's an exquisite way of understanding how God works in really difficult and uncomfortable and often not good situations and also works in the background. But there's, I mean, think about, okay, I can't, I don't have time for that. I'm telling you, it's sex and booze. That's what's in Esther. Just saying. You want, you, like, we can go down the list on every single one of the other Bible stories. It's mostly sex scandals. That's like about two-thirds of every Bible story has a sex scandal in it. Is that, is that uncomfortable? Should I not say that? Would you like me to read it for you? <laughs> Because the Bible's telling you a story, mostly that humans are idiots, and that God is incredible, working in the midst of stupid humans. And the most important story is how God entered the story. And one of the most beautiful ways it's ever been expressed is the prologue to the gospel according to John, the first 18 verses I'm going to read it, just say a few things about it. I don't feel like it's my job tonight to explain it because let's just face it, there's way more here than can be explained in 16 minutes, okay? <laughs> if we did, <laughs> I've recently been studying in these 18 verses and was looking into the literary design of these 18 verses. Holy cow, this is incredible. John is brilliant. I don't know if you know that or not. This is brilliant that there's like, Two columns of three uniting themes. It's just, it's great. It's another time. <clears throat> so I read, so I, I'm super nerdy in a lot of ways, okay? So well, what was enjoyment for me in sabbatical is I read more than a normal person probably should. But one of the things I wanted to do, I read novels. And uh, I read the whole Lord of the Rings trilogy. And you know what? If you think that's stupid, you don't know what you're talking about, okay? <laughs> let me, let me, let me, let me read <laughs> a, a, a line about stories from the great Samwise Gamgee, okay? Samwise says this. This is from the two towers, in case you want to know. 
But you know what? Those who care probably will already know this. And those who don't, that wasn't helpful information. <clears throat> and I will not be able to imitate the Samwise voice, but here it goes. It's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad has happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun rises, it'll shine out the clearer. I know now folks in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. That there's some good in this world, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. You should read the whole thousand pages of that three-piece work to really understand that paragraph. I think Sam Wise is hitting on something that's important. That we actually are a part of a big story. God's story. And the only way that's even possible is that God entered into the story himself. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, logically speaking, that's impossible. How can, how can something be with another something and also that something? Just literary design, beginning at the top and at the bottom, framing an inclusio of his identity. He was both with God and was God. Okay, nerds for another time. What John asserts is that if you're going to understand the Jesus story, you got to go back to the very beginning and see every other story leading up to this story. So his gospel actually begins by including the entire Bible up to this point. All things. So here's idea one, creation. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. If you read the Gospel of John, you'll find that light and life act as major themes. But John doesn't give it to you by theology. He tells you a story. He involves you in the characters. He involves you in the words of Jesus in a way that isn't just sermonizing. He says, if you're going to understand Jesus... Yeah, it's only through Jesus that you'll understand everything else. Because all things were made through him. And there's nothing out there in all of what we know to be created that was apart from the word, Jesus. Second part, first part creation, second part witness. There was a man sent from John, sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light 
that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Third part, choice. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right or the power or the authority to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Man, how much John is saying right here. He says, to those who received Jesus, who believed upon his name, God gave the authority, the power to become children of God, a new birth. Because the birth that came from blood, your natural identity, who you are in the flesh, your ethnicity, your skin color, your socioeconomic status, who you are in the flesh, that's not who you are. Nor of the will of man. Nor, nor did it come, the will also means desire. Nor did it come because two people couldn't contain themselves physically. Did you know that's what it was saying? <laughs> Just, the Bible's talking way more about things than you think they, it is. It didn't come because you just, that's the way genetics work. Two people couldn't contain themselves. They did a thing and here you came. Sorry. Because um, naturalism says, well, there's really no meaning or purpose to the world. They're just matter and then matter has to procreate other matter. And so it just goes down the line and it's just, Sorry, just the genetics lined up, atoms fell into place, and boom, here you are. Nor of the will of man. And one of the ways this can be understood is a person's desire to build their natural family as their legacy. Because thinking about it in the ancient world, the way, the way your legacy goes forward is procreate, specifically procreate males. So that, so that your legacy, your progeny could be continued on. And John's saying, who you are in the flesh, it's not who you are. Who you are because you have parents, that's not who you are. Who you are because you belong to a family in the natural, it's not, it's not who you are. You're here because of God. You're here because you're a new person. That's who you really are. And my favorite verse. So, okay. So just literary design here. Okay. So back up a little bit. All things were made through him. Creation. John witness. Okay. And then choice. Got it? All right. Verse 14. He's bringing the whole Exodus story 
into this single verse when he, this is incarnation. So you got creation, creation, witness, choice, incarnation. And the word became flesh. The word from the beginning that created everything that came into the world, but the world didn't recognize him, nor did his own people receive him. The word that did everything became a human being and tabernacled. So that pitched a tent, he, he, he pitched a tent, tabernacled with us. So just as he says in the beginning, and we have to see the whole Exodus and creation story into Jesus, he says his own people didn't receive him. So all of Israel's story Now he says all the story of Exodus, of God dwelling in a tent. Yes, that story only makes sense because of this person. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we, oh, we've seen, we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 15, hey, John, so, okay, so if you read the gospel of John, look at all of the parenthetical statements. There's a ton of them. And what it is, is John, as the narrator, poking into the story and saying, hey, hey, reader, that's not what really they were thinking at that moment. They were stupid. So later they realized this and then they believed, okay, back to the story. John bore witness about him. It's like, why, why do we go back there? Okay, so creation, witness, choice. Incarnation, witness. John bore witness about him and cried out. This is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Choice. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. The Torah was given to us through Moses. And oh, yes, there was grace in it. But no, not the real grace through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then his concluding statement. No one has ever seen God. No one. No, that story of Moses on the mountain, he, he saw where God was. He didn't see God in all of his glory. God told him you can't see that. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, David, no. They, they, saw, they saw hints and they heard whispers and they saw shadows and they saw through clouds and fog. No one has ever really seen God. The only God And this translates many different ways. And you'll see so many different variations of this phrase. Who is at the Father's side? Some translations say, who is in the bosom of the Father? Some say, nearest to the Father's heart. So in the first two verses, he said it was the Word. The Word was both with God and was God. So when a word comes out from you, it is you, but it's also distinct from you. And now the image here that John's saying is like 
a, a dear beloved son on the lap of the father. The literal, like as literal as you can get is the lap of the father. Like the word that proceeds that is both God and distinct from God. Now the son that is both God and distinct from God. That's on the lap of the father. The nearest, the most tender to the father's heart. He has, and this translation says made him known. And it's because every one of your translations will say something to the effect of he has revealed him. He has made him known. In Greek, it's an incomplete sentence. The son that is at the lap of the father, he has made known. What? And John has 21 chapters telling you a story of what Jesus made known. What God is really like, the fullness of his glory, grace upon grace. And what that story of Jesus, yes, his death and resurrection, but also his life, that story, I believe to be the only story that truly has the power, not just to shape you, but transform you. Because it's only that story, the story of Jesus, that who believe upon his, who receive him, who believe upon his name, He gives the right to become children of God. Not of the flesh, not of man, not of sexual desire. No, of God. And that's why we have to be carriers of that story because the story of Jesus is the only story I believe truly has the power to transform you. And so when we say we exist to see people transformed by Jesus, there's so many ways that that is possible. The primary way is that you hear the story of Jesus over and over and over and over and over. And the only way our story becomes the word of our testimony is if we love our life not all the way to the end. We give up our story, surrendering to Jesus. And this is the primary reason why I love to come to the table. Because way beyond our understanding, let's face it, you don't know what you're doing most of the time when you come and receive a cracker and a cup of juice. We, we want to believe more. We want to understand more. We're, hopefully all of us are growing in our understanding. But come on, there's so much more going on. And what this does though, is it rehearses the story of Jesus every single time that you and I can bring absolutely nothing to his table except to receive him. And what are we receiving when we receive him? His body broken for you. His blood shed for you. And in, like, in a sense, like we're ingesting, our, 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 our taste buds are getting involved in the story of Jesus. To say, I, the only way my story really matters, not just to the people around me, but matters in the scope of all of his story, eternity, 
is that my story comes into the story of Jesus. The only part of my story that matters is the part where I gave up. And surrendered it all to Jesus. And the thousands and thousands of ways that his story has transformed mine. That his death and resurrection has mattered more to me than my ego. That his death and resurrection has reminded me who I really am. That I am not what people say I am. I am not my successes and I am not my failures. I am not my awesomeness and my stupidity. The only, my story only matters in that it has been surrendered to Jesus.